before Bill begins, let me preempt him for a moment. After the study which we just completed, I thought the Lord was leading me to teach Colossians. And so began to look at Colossians and try to prepare. Nothing was happening. It, it's easy just to read a verse, say, here's what the verse says, move along. But that's not what we want to do. We want to, want to give to the church that which God gives to us for you. And so here I am like, why doesn't the Lord release? So I talked to Evan about it. And Evan said, well, what about Philemon? We haven't taught Philemon in a long time. And so I said, fine. So for three or four days, looking at Philemon, looking at the background, the context, et cetera, and putting some things, nothing, like a wall. What is this all about? So I talked to Bill. I said, Bill, would you like to help? He said he would, but, you know, Bill's propensity is like mine. I like to do the whole thing because he's done it before. And so as soon as he said that, it was like the Holy Spirit says to me, now, this is the way I want to have it done. I was just going the wrong way for a couple of times and had to hear it. So this morning and for the next several Sundays, however long it would take, I am really excited and pumped about this. I believe, and this is why I am so desirous of us and you communicating to the rest of the church, please be here. Because this little 25 verses will teach us a whole lot about relationships and we all need this and many of you would say well Peter you need it the most you're probably right so I will be here taking notes so this morning I want to introduce you not that you don't know him already fellow brother in Christ a fellow elder and my friend Bill Tree. Uh, <clears throat> well, I, Peter tells me I have all the way till 10 o'clock, so <laughs> I don't know if I need it or not, but we'll see. Um, I was, um, when, when I was asked to think about doing this, I, first thing I do is, because I used to teach a lot more than I have in recent years, and I, I taught a lot of different books of the New Testament, letters of Paul. And, um, so I thought, I, somewhere back in my memory, I thought I taught this little book one time. <laughs> and uh, so my, I asked Nancy, can you see if you can find my notes? And in more recent years, they're typed, but uh, in, in the ancient time that this was done, it was in my handwriting. But she found it, but it was, uh, it, it was inadequate, uh, frankly. Um, had some insight, but very little. I think sometimes more insight comes with more gray hair, although I've had a lot of gray hair for a long time. So here we, here we go. We're going to get started. Um, the, thing that I, and the thing that I really believe this little letter wants to teach us has, has to do with something that's been um, churning in my spirit for a while, which is uh, which is the issue of Christian community. 
and what does it look like? What does proper relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ look like? And I think we live far beneath it, so I hope that, I know I do, and uh, I hope that um, some thoughts, I, I hope the Holy Spirit will give you some thoughts about it. You have some notes, and one of the things I want to ask you to do is, if you don't have a pen, borrow one from somebody or whatever, and as, it won't be necessarily what I say, but as you have impressions about what's being said, very often what the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to you is not what I'm saying. It's what he tells you. And if you'll take notes on those events, you know, the notes are here, so you don't need to rewrite the notes, but if you have an impression from the, that, you, that, this is an interesting thought I have, write it down, because you'll find that will be fruitful. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be considering this little book, one of the shortest books in the New Testament. 25 verses. 2 John and 3 John are shorter, and the little book of Jude has also 25 verses. Philemon and all kind of... I, when I go back and look at these, because everybody pronounces this man's name differently, I'm told and think the correct pronunciation is Philemon, but I've used what Peter used, Philemon. Some people I've heard say Philemon. Uh, we're going to try to get past that. You'll see in a minute when we... But Philemon is what I'm going to call it. And Philemon is only one of two letters written primarily in the New Testament from one person to another. The other being from the Apostle John to a man named Gaius. Um, of all the personal letters, though, this is the only one named for the recipient of the letter, Philemon. And of all of these short letters, this letter carries with it, I believe, the broadest implication for life together. Now, you're going to hear that, those two words a lot in the next few weeks if you're here. Life together in a Christian community. And Paul wrote this letter to Philemon, the leader of a local church that met in his home in Colossae. Another word that people have trouble pronouncing. That's the way I'm going to pronounce it, Colossae. And what I want to encourage you to do, and today is just going to be an introduction to the introduction. Kind of. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be going verse by verse today at all. We'll do that in the weeks to come. But I want you to find yourself in this story. You are in this story, and so you want to find yourself. In fact, you may find yourself in more than one place in this story. In this, I want... Are you the offender? You the person who's offended someone? Are you the one who's been offended? Or are you the person, perhaps with the opportunity to be used in God-honoring reconciliation between God's children? Perhaps you're all of the above. If you're not now all of the above, you will be at some point in your walk. But again, as you consider the story of a real-life experience in the early church, I ask you to identify with one or all of the people in this story. Very often as we consider the experiences of God's people that are portrayed in Scripture, we'll tend to treat them as irrelevant to our own modern experience. That is always a mistake. God gave us this short little letter. You'll know the Scripture. For our instruction our reproof, our correction, and our training in righteousness. 
2 Timothy 3.16. He gave us this letter for that purpose. That's what he gave scripture for. Whatever you do with this word, don't throw it over your shoulder for the person behind you or the person beside you or for someone else. Find yourself in this story. And it is hard to do that. It requires focus to do that. It requires us to, in, it requires intentionality to do that. It takes real intentional focus on hearing what God has for you in this word. One writer put it this way is a, from a little book called The Ideal Congregation. I hope you pick up on this. It's not in your notes. This little quote that I found. In a congregation of two, each auditor takes it for granted that the preacher is referring to the other. <laughs> this is a lesson we all need to learn. When we hear the word preached or taught, we need to make sure we listen to what God is speaking to us, not to our neighbor. <clears throat> and I want to start this study of Philemon with an exhortation to us about the importance of community. We need to understand and value the great blessings that we have in each other because it is Satan's device to divide us, to separate us, to split us up so that we don't understand and uh, benefit from the blessings of life together. These are blessings that God intends for us to have as Christians living together in this time that we live between the cross of Christ and the day of his return and the judgment at the end of our time here on earth. I'm persuaded that we are blessed beyond what we fully appreciate. Some of you may appreciate fellowship. You may appreciate life together. But I don't think any of us appreciate it as much as we ought to. I'm convinced that one of Satan's schemes is to keep us from understanding how blessed we are and to live at a level beneath those blessings. In his little book, and I'll be using this somewhat during the study, a little book called Life Together, translated from German, Dietrich Bonhoeffer described these blessings. And I have a long quote in your notes, and this is from that quote. I want to read it, and I want you to consider it. He wrote, in the, in the period between the death of Christ and the day of judgment, when Christians are allowed to live here in a visible community with other Christians, we have merely a gracious anticipation of the end time. It is by God's grace that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly around God's word and sacrament in this world. Not all Christians partake of this grace. The imprisoned, the sick, the lonely who live in the diaspora, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands stand alone. They know the visible community is grace. They pray with the psalmist. Psalm 42, 5, I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. The physical appearance of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength in the believer. Notice what he is a source. You may not experience it as a source. You may not recognize it. You may not be living in that, the appreciation of that. But it is a source of joy and strength. With great yearning, the imprisoned apostle Paul calls his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, to come to him in prison in the last days of his life. He wants to see him again and have him near. Paul has not forgotten the tears Timothy shed during their final parting. 2 Timothy 1.4, thinking of the congregation in Thessalonica, Paul prays, and he, it's, this is a quote from the, uh, 1 Thessalonians, night and day, most earnestly that we, we may see you face to face. He was being sincere there. 
But if there is so much happiness and joy, even in a single encounter of one Christian with another, what inexhaustible riches must invariably open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in daily community life with other Christians. It is easily forgotten that the community of Christians is a gift of grace from the kingdom of God, a gift that can be taken from us any day. Therefore, let those who until now have had the privilege of living a Christian life together with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of their heart. Let them thank God on their knees and realize it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are still permitted to live in the community of Christians today. Now, you should know this. Bonhoeffer wrote these words in 1938 after the Nazis had closed down a little seminary that was an illegal seminary because he was part of what was called the Confessing Church because uh, Hitler had taken over the Lutheran Church in Germany, in fact renamed it the German Church and had co-opted most of the pastors in Germany. And there were just a few faithful men who stood against uh, Nazi tyranny. And this was a time when he wrote this, when the confessing church in Germany was being threatened with literal extinction if they didn't buy into the German church run by Adolf Hitler. And that Bonhoeffer was one of the leaders of that confessing church. And he knew, and we need to know this, and this little quote got left out. I think I probably miscommunicated it to Evan, and he put this together for me. I didn't get this quote, so this won't be in your notes, but this is really where I was headed with this whole section, so I want you to listen carefully. Later in this little book, Life Together, Von Hoffer wrote this, and it's so full of meaning that I'm afraid that it, it, I'm going to put it in next week's notes so you'll see it because it's kind of a theme that will run through what we have to share in the next few weeks. Here's what he wrote. Christian community means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ, nothing more and nothing less. He goes on to expound about that. Nothing more, nothing less. We're in Christ. Christian community means community through Jesus Christ. He goes on. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. Not around our saint season tickets, not around whatever it is that we fellowship around other than this. This is the essence of our fellowship. What does that mean, he writes? It means first that a Christian needs others for the sake of Jesus Christ. It means second that a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. It means third that from eternity from eternity we have been chosen in Jesus Christ accepted in time and united for eternity I don't think you can capture that with me reading it something you need to think about so I'll put it in next week's notes I've started with these basic principles principles we need to know because Philemon provides us with down-to-earth, real-life situation in the, a down-to-earth, real-life situation in the early church. This letter provides a vivid illustration of what life together in Jesus Christ looks like. It's not easy. It's hard. And you can read through these 25 verses and not really realize how hard it was. So I hope to impress that upon you today. The choices we face are not natural choices. They're supernatural choices. 
despite the difficulty, despite the need for the supernatural, for the Christian, this life together is what we are called to live out for the glory of God, for our good and for, ble for our blessing. And so with that background, let's dive into the study of what God has preserved for us by the Holy Spirit in this little letter from Paul, under house arrest in Rome, to, uh, to Philemon, about a thousand miles away in Colossae. More than a thousand miles from where Philemon is receiving this letter, and Paul wrote it more than a thousand miles away. And there are three principal characters in this true story. Now, there are other names, and we'll talk about that when we go verse by verse, but I'm not going to talk about that this morning. There are three principal characters in this story. Onesimus, Philemon, and Paul the Apostle. Don't think you could not be any one of these people in the life of the church. Now, you say, oh, wait, Paul's an apostle. If you look at this, and we'll flesh this out in the weeks to come, Paul didn't write this letter as, the, as an apostle. He wrote this letter as a member of the body of Christ. He didn't, he didn't bring up his title and say, listen, I'm an apostle, you need to do what I'm saying. In fact, he, he disdained doing that. He decided not to do that. It's obvious when you read carefully this letter. He wrote this letter as a member of the body, and Philemon didn't receive this letter as the leader of a house church. He received this letter simply as another member of the body of Christ. And even though... Onesimus was a household slave or bondservant from Philemon's household. There's no reason to distance ourselves from him either. If it will help you to, will, to identify with Onesimus, then just consider him pretty accurately, actually, I think, as a common employee working for the man as you seek to find your place in the story. Just a common employee. Minimum wage, probably. First, let's, I want to pray. That was just the introduction to the introduction. Now we'll do the introduction to the rest of it. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I'm inadequate to express what is even in my heart, and my heart is not sufficient anyway. So, Lord, I ask that you would supernaturally allow us to hear what your Holy Spirit is saying to us for our teaching, for our reproof, for our correction, and for our training in righteousness. Help us by the Spirit to hear what you're saying. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read it. This is from the ESV. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our brother, beloved fellow worker, and Aphi, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. That's Philemon's house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I'm going to stop here and tell you something. Consider <laughs> that probably what happened, I'm not getting ahead of myself, but I want you to consider it as I read this. Consider Philemon getting this letter from Paul. And he's reading it in your hymn. Okay? Consider that. You're reading it for the first time. You're Philemon. Because that happened. That really happened. So consider what your thought process might have been. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly... 
Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted for you from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even more, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, if you've been reading carefully, and Peter tells me he's been asking you, some of you to read this letter. Some of you have read it over and over. All the suspense should now be gone. You, there was some suspense if you were the guy first reading this. If you were Philemon first reading this, there would have been some suspense. You may have a pretty good idea on one level of what has happened here, but let's look for a different level as we consider the theme for today. Again, find yourself in the story as we consider this little letter. What part do you have in this scenario? How does God want to adjust you and me by way of our personal instruction, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness as we consider these very real events in the life of the early church. These events happened sometime between about 58 and 62 A.D. in the little town of Colossae near Ephesus and then also in Rome over a thousand miles away where Paul was under house arrest. To help us find ourselves in this story of the effect of the gospel on relationships, I'll try to put the issues raised in this short little letter from Paul to his friend in Colossae in a modern context to help us identify with one or all of these people who belong to Christ. Now, I'm not a great script writer, but I'm going to try to kind of get you to think about this as a story that you have a part in, because you do. This wasn't written in a vacuum. It was written for our teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That's why we have it. Imagine you are Philemon. I'm going to call him Phil. Where's Phil? Is he here? I'm going to call him Phil. It's easier than continuing to try to pronounce the word correctly. A businessman who owns a small household business in a little town called Colossae. Phil is a Christian who was probably converted in Ephesus, a city near his home in Colossae, on Paul's mission, uh, on probably on Paul's third missionary journey where he spent three years in Ephesus. Phil has, based on Paul's commendations, been very generous to people in their times of trouble. 
Phil has a large, let's call it a covenant group meeting, a small group meeting in his home on a regular basis. And Phil had a household servant, bond servant, employee, however you want to consider it, Onesimus, who was a bond servant in his small business and who had worked for Phil for some time. And I'm going to call Onesimus Moose. I don't know. I just came up with that. I hope it doesn't offend anybody. It's just easier to me than keep saying Onesimus. And Moose has access to the cash register in Phil's business. This particular employee, Moose, has been very undependable. He often showed up late for work. He didn't work very hard when he was there. He tended to be surly with the customers. I'm assuming it was a retail business. We don't know that. Give me some liberty here. Some of my facts aren't found in the text, but I think they're faithful to the text and have, are hopefully designed to flesh out what have might made Moose undependable and what might make him fit perhaps you at times in your life. Moose rarely, if ever, showed up at Phil's covenant group meetings, even though Phil had invited him several times, and he lived on the property, sort of, but he just didn't like, he wasn't a believer, he didn't like to come to these meetings. Now I want to look at it for a minute from the perspective of Moose, Onesimus. Moose was a household servant, bond servant, employee, part of the household of Philemon. He had a lot going on in his life. He was just a lowly servant working for room board and very little more. But before you misunderstand, many people in that society had far less than a bondservant in a good household. But there would have been a considerable amount of turmoil in Moose's life personally. By the way, one of the things we're going to address as we, not this week, but as we go through this, is the relationship of this letter to the abolishment of slavery in the world. And we'll come back to that. Phil, at least from Moose's perspective, expected way too much from Moose. Phil even wanted Moose to attend the worship services of the church that met in his home. And Moose wasn't a believer. But Moose did know that he was going nowhere fast up the scale of promotion, social mobility, or any increase in wages. He no doubt resented the fact that so much was expected from him for so little pay. Then let's consider Paul. Paul the Apostle. Him we all know. He was in prison in Rome, really under household arrest, responsible to provide for his own lodging and food and other necessities of living while chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. Paul had been in Rome for some time now, and he was hopeful that he would be able to vindicate himself in court and go back on the mission field, planting new churches, strengthening the churches he had already planted. Now let's go back to Phil, the recipient of this letter, the employer, small group leader. One Monday morning, he came to work, as was his routine. He checked the safe, the cash drawer, and all the money was gone, about $2,000. I'm making that up, but I think I'm being faithful to the text. We don't know what he took. We know this man took something when he left. And as the morning wore on, Phil came to realize that his worthless employee, bondservant Moose, isn't going to be coming in. He didn't show up, probably checked Moose's dwelling on his own property, found Moose had skipped town taking everything with him, and the neighbors said they saw him walking away sometime Friday evening. He was long gone. He left no forwarding address, didn't tell anyone in Phil's household where he was going, and Phil had no idea where he had gone. Phil filed the necessary police reports with the local Roman magistrates, but since he didn't have insurance to cover theft, he was out $2,000. And he also had to train some other household servant to take over to do Moose's job. 
No one Phil knew had heard from his employee again for two years at least. Maybe somebody here is an employee, employer, I should say, or a manager. You've had somebody like this working for you. As time passed, Phil had almost, but not quite, forgotten about this no-good rascal of an employee, his bondservant, a moose. If you're an employer or a manager, I ask you to do your best to put yourself in Phil's shoes as this story plays out. Let's go back and consider the offender, Moose. Yes, Phil left him in charge month, Friday night. And yes, Moose had the combination of the safe or the access to the cash drawer or whatever it was. And after these years of working without advancement, Moose thought he was owed more than he'd been receiving in pay and advancement. He heard of the opportunities there were for a better job, more opportunity, more excitement in the capital city of the empire. So he took what he thought was owed to him. He skipped town. He left, headed for a better job, more opportunity, more excitement. Who could blame him? He certainly had no regrets, at least until the God of glory stepped in and drew Moose to himself, converted him, and granted Moose the gift of repentance. Now, we're not given the story of exactly how Moose came to be in Paul's household in Rome. In fact, I will say this of the commentaries that I read. A lot of them are, this is just too much of a coincidence, you know? Some of them actually use those words. Well, there are no coincidences in God's kingdom. But at some point, Moose ended up in Paul's household in Rome. And we don't know exactly the story of his conversion, but we can certainly expect that Paul was used by God as a means to result in this rascal embezzler runaway hearing the gospel, repenting, turning away from his sin, and toward the righteousness required by his justification and redemption. We also are not told how it came to be that Paul learned that Moose had been a bondservant in the household of another of Paul's children in the faith. Both of them have similar relationships, as we'll see as the story plays out. Philemon or Phil. But Paul obviously learned that Moose was a runaway and that Moose had embezzled funds from Phil, another of his children in the faith. And at this point, Paul had several choices to make. I've listed some of them in your notes. Put yourself in his place, Paul's place. You're confronted with this. By the way, harboring fugitive slaves was a very serious offense in Roman law. Very serious offense. That's what Moose was. Paul learned it. He could turn Moose over to the Roman authorities for prosecution as a runaway slave. In fact, you could make an argument that he had an obligation to do that under Roman law. You could tell no, Paul could tell no one, keep an eye on Moose, make sure he doesn't do the same thing to Paul as he did to Philemon. You could kick Moose out of the house for fear that he might be prosecuted, Paul might be prosecuted for harboring a fugitive slave. Paul was already under arrest. I can't imagine this would have made his case any more uh, palatable to the Roman authorities. Paul could write a different letter than he wrote to Phil, asserting his authority as an apostle, insisting that Phil let Moose stay with Paul to serve Paul, since actually Moose had turned out to be very valuable to Paul. 
And besides, Paul had become fond of moose. Paul could have written Philemon a strong letter insisting that slavery was wrong. Philemon was wrong in the first place for having him as a slave. Some commentaries have even criticized Paul for not doing that. Paul could demand that Moose turn himself in or immediately return to Phil's household and face the consequences of his action. Or this last option I have here is the one I think Paul took. And I want you to understand, this was a supernatural choice. Now, when I say supernatural, I don't mean somebody came down from heaven and... Let me, let me back up. We're called upon to make supernatural choices from time to time. When I say supernatural, I mean beyond natural. I mean beyond what is normal. I mean beyond what society expects. Beyond what we can reason in our own natural mind. We're called upon to make some choices like that from time to time. Particularly in relationships. And Paul made a supernatural choice to persuade Moose to do the right thing and then facilitate that right choice by taking on Moose's case, bearing Moose's debt, and extending himself to Phil as he did in this letter. That's not a normal choice. I hope you see that. Those are some options. There may be more. If we were faced with a similar situation, similar situation, what would we have done? What would you have done? Maybe you've faced analogous situations with family or others who have wronged you. What did you do? What did I do? What do we think we were justified in doing? Don't think for a minute that Paul's life as a believer, called upon to make choices about right and wrong, was any less difficult than the choices you face. It's a good time to ask ourselves, what do we do when faced with choices that call upon us to decide right from wrong? I tried to find the scripture. Peter will probably be able to tell me. Somebody here, and I... We ran out of time and didn't look it up, but there's a passage of Scripture that's, that basically communicates this. It talks about the deep things of God, and we, we sometimes have deep things of God or miracles and all kinds of stuff. The deep things of God are learning to distinguish right from wrong. That's the deep things of God. And that's what Paul did here. Do we just go with the flow? Do we consider God's glory in the decision when we have options to make, decisions to make? Do we consider the call on our lives to love each other and to love even our enemies? Do we do the hard thing, the supernatural thing? Well, those are, here's what we know Paul must have faced. He was holding um, worship services in his own home. Paul was. He took on a new employee to help serve him personally. Paul shared the gospel with this new employee and God moved the new employee to repentance and confession. Now what? <laughs> Paul had to make some choices. And the choices were not all up to Paul. Moose had some difficult choices to make. What should he do? This scoundrel, this embezzler, this runaway 
He had some choices. In fear for his freedom and a punishment, Moose could have run away again. When he was confronted with this, when it became, when he was drawn to Christ, we don't know whether he revealed this or whether someone else in Paul's household revealed this, but once it was known in the household, Paul's household, he could have run. In fact, that would be characteristic, wouldn't it? He could have turned himself into the authorities. That would have been difficult. He could have been, con- he could have been converted, but hidden his status, living out his new life without confessing. Now, we don't know if, that, if he had that choice or not, but it's possibly an option. Or he could have and apparently did, however it was disclosed, however his past was disclosed, whether it was by him or by someone else, he could have and did voluntarily go back to face Philemon. This, again, is a supernatural choice. Not the natural choice that we would make. We know that Paul and Moose made supernatural choices to do the right thing, although these were hard choices, and even though these choices involve risk and responsibility and trust in a God who honors supernatural choices. But we still have one more player in this true story, Philemon. Let's consider him. One fine day, out of the blue, Phil received a hand delivery of a letter from Paul, the missionary who first preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to him in special meetings held for several months, really several years, in a neighboring town of Ephesus. Paul had been for some time held under house arrest in Rome, and Phil knew that. And Paul was there essentially for preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And I suspect that Phil and the church who met in Phil's house had been praying. In fact, we know, Paul says it, had been praying for Paul's release from custody. Paul is now an old man, but he has never stopped being active in the work of the gospel by teaching those who visit him and by writing wonderful, encouraging letters of instruction to all of the churches he worked to plant in Phil's neighboring towns and cities. And we don't know exactly how the delivery of this letter happened. By the way, it was probably delivered both with the letter to the Colossians and with the letter to the Ephesians. But we know that it was delivered by one of Paul's close assistants, Tychicus, and that this short personal letter was also came addressed to Philemon, and also another letter that I just mentioned addressed to the church that met in Phil's house. But what what we do know is that along with Tychicus came the runaway slave Onesimus. I wish I knew exactly how this happened. But I wonder if possibly Tychicus gave Phil the personal letter and asked him to read it first while Moose was hiding around the corner. Now that's just, <laughs> that's just speculation, okay? But I wish I knew. I wish I knew. But if that's what happened, I can picture Phil looking up as soon as he got to verse 10 to see the runaway rascal embezzler that this letter was written about. What a shock. The old preacher Paul's letter, as we think about it, demanded a great deal from Phil. 
Phil is asked in the letter to forgive this runaway embezzler, to treat him as a brother in Christ. Now, by means of this personal letter delivered by Tychicus, the old preacher is asking Phil to forgive the embezzler, welcome him back as a brother in Christ, not forgive him and send him off, but to welcome him as a brother in Christ. And to send the old preacher, the Apostle Paul, a bill for anything the embezzler owed him. The old man even signed a personal guarantee. You can, if you read this letter carefully and understand in the Greek, this is clearly conveyed. Paul picked up the pen, signed it, basically signed a guarantee of the debt. I'll pay you back. The debt's on me. By the way, you owe me some things, but that's okay. I'll pay... <laughs> You owe me your very life, but that's okay. (laughs) Send me a bill. And he's asked this, asked Phil to give the rascal his old job back with an increase of pay, or better still, he asked Phil to forgive him and send him back to work for Paul in Rome, assuring Phil that this man who was worthless to you will now be totally different He'll be profitable to you going forward, whether it is as your employee or as your gift back to the old man writing to you from house arrest in Rome. Put yourself in Moose's shoes. Here you are facing the man you ran from, stole from, who legally owns you, depending on his forgiveness for your very life and freedom. Don't you think there was some tension in the air? What do we think Moose expected? What do you do if, you're con- if you are Philemon, confronted with Moose, your rascally former employee bondservant? What are the alternatives that are available to you? What options do you have? You can turn him over to the police. Hey, I already have a warrant out for his arrest. You can hire him back. You can refuse to hire him back. You can write a letter back to the old preacher, Paul, give me $2,000 plus interest, please. You can hire him back, but withhold your forgiveness for now. You want to wait and see. Watch him very closely. Or you can do exactly what the old preacher asked you to do. Welcome his brother and rejoice about it. That's a supernatural choice, that last one. This is an amazing story, really. What an amazing coincidence. The embezzler ran away to the capital city of the foreign country where the old man, Paul, lived under house arrest. He wandered into that house with a friend just to hear the famous old man teach, and the Holy Spirit anointed teaching was the means used to capture his heart, reconcile him to God. The gift of repentance was given by God. He confessed his sin, came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ the Lord. This is the story of this little letter from Paul in chains under house arrest in Rome to Philemon, a good Christian brother living in Colossae. The employee was a slave Onesimus whose name means profitable. This little letter is one of the treasures of the New Testament. It holds a unique place in Paul's writings. The only surviving example of a letter to an individual friend and convert. However, the greetings at the beginning and end of the letter also suggest to us that this letter was intended for a public reading. So this short epistle shouldn't be read simply as a private letter from one personal friend to another, but rather as a letter preserved for us by one member of the body of Christ to another 
about a personal matter. And as we study this letter more closely in the next few weeks, we will see that this letter is a model of tact and courtesy. This letter, as I have said, is for our instruction, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. This is Paul, the apostle, writing, not in his authority as apostle, but as a fellow member of the body of Christ. Now, what do you think Philemon's response was? Think about it. What do you think it was? How do you think he responded? There's a pretty good clue. We have the letter. He didn't, he didn't throw it in the fireplace. He didn't tear it up. We have it. That ought to tell you a lot about what his response was. It can probably be safely assumed Philemon accepted Onesimus back and did exactly what Paul asked him to do. But as you think about this, as you evaluate this little story, what do you think about what Paul asked Philemon to do? Was it the right thing to ask? Did Paul handle the situation the way he should have handled it? What do you think about Paul's choice among his options when he learned about Luce's criminal activity, the fact that Paul's friend and brother in Christ was the criminal victim? Well, let me suggest, as hard as it is for us to understand in the natural, Paul's actions are a model for us to look at from all sides and to be an example in the spirit of how we should handle issues of forgiveness, reconciliation, and relationships in the church. Paul was forgiving when someone repented. Paul worked to restore and reconcile people in relationships. Paul encouraged reconciliation even when it cost Paul even when it was risky to Paul to get himself involved. He offered to make Philemon whole. His offer was genuine. He recognized the importance of being a peacemaker, one who worked to reconcile fallen man to fallen man in the same way he worked to be Christ's ambassador to reconcile fallen man to God. I have a couple of passages of Scripture there. I just want to read one of them that I have at the end of the notes there from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. This letter came by the same hand delivery that the little letter we're studying came. Paul writes, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And I want you to focus on that last clause. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now, this letter was written as an apostle. (laughs) As the Lord has, how's the Lord forgiven you? Well, he forgave me, but he holds me at arm's length. No, no. He forgave you and he embraces you. I trust that in the weeks to come, we will all hear from the Holy Spirit about how we're to be part of this pilgrim journey of life together in Christ. Understanding our former status as slaves to sin 
And I trust that we will increasingly and with joy embrace the grace gift of our true status in Christ, living together with other believers. I trust that this will inform increasingly the way we relate to each other and that we will increasingly prize, prize the blessings God intended for us in this life together. I think we live far beneath it. And we're called to live in the full knowledge and benefit of the blessings of life together in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I have heard, and I hope we all have heard, and I believe we, many of us here have heard, that we're called uh, in this area of relationships, all for our joy and our blessing, to make supernatural choices when we're offended, when we are the one who offended, and we're, when we're the one who can come alongside and has a, a place in the life between the offender and the offended, to be the peacemaker, to be the reconciler, to be the one who <laughs> causes the offender and the offended to be united once more fully as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, I trust that you have begun to impress upon us the part that we are playing right now and I have no doubt we'll be called to play in the days and weeks and months and years to come till you return, till we're called home. Give us the courage, Lord, supernaturally, to make supernatural choices when faced with these situations that call for more than the natural response. And, Lord, we know that you're capable of doing that, and this little letter is evidence. Beyond that, Lord, give us evidence in our own lives that you're capable of doing that. As you, when we make those supernatural choices, trusting you, flood our lives with joy and blessing. Lord, I ask these things in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Didn't do too bad by the clock.